Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. On this bonus edition of The Thriller Zone, please welcome Elisa Valdez, author of Hollow Beasts. We got some hollow beasts to talk about, but I also want to talk about a hella guest. That's you. Thank Bang. you. Yes. By the way, I love this cover. It's, Isn't it uh, amazing? The it colors. Is, yeah. It's 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 sexy. It's hot. It's mysterious and uh, all that. But we're but first, I'm gonna do this, and uh, I want to thank you for your patience. We had to blow you off for a week because we had uh, this month has just been stacked with New York Times bestsellers back to back. I mean, it's, I've seen know, that. That's remarkable. It's You've a got t- some heavy heavy hitters on here. <laughs> yes, I'm very blessed. It's been a w- wicked great time. Now, there's so many things I want to talk about, and I would ordinarily really put you on the spot because I'm really famous for putting people on the spot because I'm former radio guy. So our thing was when you wake up in the morning and you flip on your uh, coffee maker and then you flip on your radio and you hear people doing crazy things where people are on the spot, that was me back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So I would ordinarily, I know you're looking at me going, what's, what, that can't 70s? be. 70s? No. You had to have been like two. <sighs> okay, I think I love you. <laughs> but I was going to put you on the spot and say break out the saxophone because I wanted to hear just an... Wait. Is it right? Is that it's right there? Oh, good. Okay, cool. I'm not going to play it, but... Why yeah, not? It's, it's there. Oh, you have, it doesn't you have, have a read up. on it and it just would look weird. I get... Nobody looks good playing the saxophone. Really. I mean... Okay. Okay. Well, I, if you know, I, Mindy A. Bear, she looks great playing this. Okay. Now. Well, I was thinking uh, you're not going to pull a Dizzy Gillespie. And went, <laughs> you never know. All right. Well. well yeah, folks. I would have if I knew you wanted me to, but I don't have reeds on it. I have to get up and go get the reeds, but it's right there. You know what we'll do? We'll have you back another with, uh, with your follow-up uh, bestseller. Yay! And Blood and, Mountain. Blood Mountain's out next year, so. Okay, well, we'll do that, and we'll talk about your saxophone. But because you majored in jazz performance. I, I mean, did. Yeah, I went to Berklee College of Music in Boston um, and majored in, in performance on the tenor saxophone, jazz, yeah. That's crazy. You have such a, you have a really wicked variety of a background. I'm talking like fitness, cooking, jazz, aerobics, uh, teaching, uh, broadcast journalism, and the list goes on. It's crazy. Print, print yeah. journalism. Yeah, I mean, I'm old, so that's what happens when you're old. Like, you, your resume gets really long. People are like, how could you do so many things? I'm like, it's taken a really long time. Um, I've evolved, you know. But, yeah. yeah, so that was back back when I was a teenager. And um, I wrote about my experience at Berkeley. I always knew I wanted to be a writer. Even when I was like nine, I was writing my first story. Um, and I like music too. I'm both. And uh, But the, my experience at Berklee College of Music in the late 80s, early 90s was kind of rough. It, it, it was like 85, the student body was 85% male. The teaching staff was 98% male. There were no kind of 
it was just very a different time. It was like the Clarence Thomas and Nita Hill time. And I wrote about how uncomfortable the experience was for me and a bunch of other women at the school. And I sent it to the Boston Globe blind. And they ran the story. They fact-checked it and they ran it really big on a Sunday a couple of weeks before graduation. And uh, Bonnie Raitt was our commencement speaker that year. And um, I remember her handing me my diploma and being like, you're the girl who wrote that story. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, it was amazing. It was fantastic. And it doesn't get any better out here for sexism, you know. And I remember at that point thinking, you know, I was about to graduate and go on my first job, which was playing in the Americana lounge on a carnival cruise ship, like <laughs> in a big band for a ventriloquist whose mouth moved. It was drunk. It was like. I could do that for the rest of my life because that's like the level of musician I am and weddings and God knows what. Or I could do this other thing that made Bonnie Raitt know who I was. So um, I went to graduate school after a week. I was not after a week, after the next year. But I yeah. spent a week on the cruise ship and I'm like, this sucks, man. It was I was sick all the time. They didn't let the crew above deck because yeah, I had this idea. Oh, cruise ship. Fun. No, I was down in the bowels of the ship. I'd creep out at night to play for this weird dude. And yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I went to grad school for journalism at Columbia because um, I'm like, you know, I'd like to do this thing for real. And the Globe hired me like as soon as I graduated. They hired me as the youngest staff writer at the Boston Globe ever. And um, I got three Pulitzer nominations within like the first you know, five years. and What? Yeah, and before I was 28, I was named, like, the best essayist, newspaper essayist in the nation. I'm like, I was probably on the wrong path with the music thing. But, um... You think? But I write. I write as a musician. It's it's auditory for me. So when yeah. I edit, I edit out loud. I My writing day's pretty regimented. When you work in journalism, I went to the LA Times after that. I spent about 10 years in journalism. But when you're a newspaper writer... You never get what writer's block because there's no time. There's no time. And it wasn't an option. Like you could feel terrible or tired and you don't want to write about the Somerville city council meeting, you know, who does, <laughs> but you do it anyway because you're getting paid to do that. So I try to do that with novels now. Um, so I, I get up, I write when I'm not taking my puking dog to the vet, I'll write pretty consistently every morning and, and then around one or two, I'll stop, but I record what I've written. Mm -hmm. And then I listen to it as I go for a walk or a hike. You know, I totally get this, Elisa. I totally I get it. I, I really do because everything to me, my, ask my wife, everything to me is about sound. Mm -hmm. It's how something sounds, uh, an odd noise can annoy the fuck out of me. Um, <laughs> there's a certain balance to words that when you hear it you realize oh that really is melodic that really works and then when you read it I'm, I'm a big fan of like you reading it out loud then you'll read it out loud sometimes and go well that really sucks that doesn't <laughs> that just sounds yeah. horrible so yeah 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 and when you learn jazz improvisation on um as a keyboardist or something where you don't have to take breaths right they they teach you at berkeley to only play phrases that are as long as an exhale because the human ear only evolved to take in packets of information as long as that. And then there's always a natural pause because you're breathing in. So my writing is like that. And I remember one of the first kind of criticisms I got when I spoke at a university after the Dirty Girl Social Club came out. It was someone said, your writing is very, your, your sentences are very short. 
and easy to understand, you know? And they're like, is that a problem for you in the world of high letters? <laughs> and I'm like, it's not a problem for me. Like, I, I guess it depends on what your goal is as a writer. And mine has always been kind of the journalistic goal, which is communicate clearly with as many people as possible and get out of my, my own way. Right. So, um, I, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I approach fiction. You know, and not to uh, make it about anyone else besides you, because you are my star for the next uh, few minutes. But when we, when we were talking with Don Winslow, he was using a very similar thing. He's very much about seeing the page, and I'm a I'm a an enormous fan of white space, or as some people call negative space. So when I look at a page. I am more comfortable when there are gaps in white space because I feel like there's a fluidity mm -hmm. that makes me feel comfortable. Plus, I know that my eye will move more quickly. Yeah. And uh, I think this kind of follows your rhythmic references. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Nobody wants to be overwhelmed. No. Now, I want to, by the way, a quick question, because this has been burning in my head, because Don and I also talked about this. Do you have a favorite saxophonist, whether it's uh, alto, soprano, soprano, or whatever? Do you have a favorite horn blower? Who is I it? I do. It's probably someone nobody's ever heard of. Um, he's a Norwegian saxophonist named Jan Garbarek. Oh, Jan Garbarek, yeah. J-A-N. All his work with Keith... Um, Oh my gosh, why Pat Matheny? Yeah, Pat Matheny. And I love him because he didn't come from like, there was a lot of pressure to conform at Berkeley, weirdly, to play uh -huh. bebop, to play a million miles an hour, to do it this particular way to sound like. And I like Michael Brecker too, um, and Joe Henderson. But Jan Garbarek was like, I'm going to just riff on Norwegian folk music because that's who I am. I'm going to go stand on the edge of a cliff in the fjords and just like play to the whales and i just love it he's his work is so emotive you know i don't know if it's i'm gonna feel like a cliche clown right now but i was thinking <laughs> that you might have pulled up somebody like you know desmond getz coltrane parker uh Rollins. i love all those guys yeah. I, I do I, and we studied them sure a great deal but as far as you know i'm from I, i'm not gonna say new mexico and norway are similar but i think there is a similar vibe as far as just the vastness of the spaces. Oh, here. got it. Okay, you yeah. Know? Well, let's transition into this magnificent little book called Hollow Beasts. Now, I've got a few things to talk about, and um, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up one right now. It starts with a wicked prologue. I'm, there's no there's no giveaways here, but it starts with a wicked prologue. It's disturbing, and it really makes me hate a little piece of humanity. We'll come back to that in a minute. But then it moves on to some odd humor. I was laughing out loud with the uh, Instagrammers and the uh, Hot Springs. That was friggin' brilliant. I mean, you nailed the dialogue to the wall. Thank you. Then that gets complicated with bad men. Again, why is it always bad men? They're just, it, that sucks. And the, But then it, it, it ends... Back to my, uh, I'm going to bring up Roller Coaster. It ends with a reunion of sorts that'll make you smile. So it really kind of has a great full circle, which you don't always get what you want. Thank you, Rolling Smith. No, you don't always get in thrillers, you know? Yeah. So. Well, my, one of my, my, my absolute favorite writer, I would say, well, I have two of them, but one's alive and one's dead. 
Um, the living one is Dean Koontz. Like, I've been a huge Dean Koontz fan my whole life. Like I can see that. College. like, And I wanted, when I started out in novels 20 years ago, I really wanted to be in thrillers. And somebody who was perceived to be like me, that was, there wasn't a, a ton of kind of like welcome for that. So I did what what was expected or where I seemed to fit. But that's always where my heart's been. And what I love about him is what I love about my favorite dead writer, who is Charles Dickens. <laughs> and I think they both tell really fully realized emotional stories about complex characters, but it's also social commentary at the same time. Yeah. Um, and I, I often tell people, if you want to know the myths of a time, myths, you know, you look at the journalism because they'll present things that aren't true as though they're true. So I would imagine in Victorian England, child labor was sort of like no big deal. Well, it's becoming that again here, isn't it? Um, Whereas if you want to know the truths of a time, the emotional truths of a time, you look to the novelists. And I think that's what Dickens does. I think that's what Kuntz does. And it's what I was trying to do too. Um, So, and life is, is not just one thing. It's not just like good and bad. And, and I tried to, Throw some nuance in there. And in all fairness, there's one bad woman in the group of terrorists. <laughs> but even she, I wanted to try to show, like, she, Marjorie, uh, I wanted to show that she has become what she is just kind of just unthinkingly. Like, it just goes along with, you know, bedazzling her jeans from Hobby Lobby. And yeah. like, it, it doesn't really occur to her that she's doing anything wrong other than. And I wanted to show she was brutalized, too, as a kid. Yeah, but I wanted to introduce some levity to it also. Yeah. Um, there was a, a survey done of the happiest, peop- happiest music in the world, which was really interesting. Uh-huh. And it's almost always coming from the saddest or the most painful places. So like the Dominican Republic, you know, with merengue, or even when people sure. say the blues. The blues wasn't sad. The blues was a counterpoint to the sorrow. So I try to do that in my book, too, like to show that there is humor amongst the victims and the people who are oppressed. So even in that prologue, you know, the girls are it's, it's some women who are being kept in a hole in the ground in the forest and they're being hunted. Yeah. And one of them is just telling her story over and over to the others in case something happens to her. So they'll know how to what to tell her mom. But there's one in there who's just like, oh, God, shut up. Yeah. You know? And I was trying to show the diversity of those girls that the, the terrorists have all assumed to be one thing. They're not one thing. Um, and in fact, one of them's kind of mean herself, you know. So, yeah. I just but more, to- more importantly, let's get into the protagonist, who is uh, Jody Luna. I like this gal. She's sassy. She's straight ahead. Everyone's going to like her. But where did you come up with a game warden for a protagonist? I like that because I don't think there's, there's a whole lot of stories out there, Lisa, about game wardens. You know, it's funny. It, so the idea came to me first, and then I Googled. I'm like, is anyone else writing about game wardens? And that's how I found CJ Box, who I love. Oh, he's, yeah. He's, like, going to be the silver medalist right under Coons and uh, Dickens. Like, the guy is, like, he's a machine, first of all. He writes so much, but he's so good. Yeah. He's just so good. Um, but, yeah, I was kind of, like, I only read a couple of his books before I started writing because then I'm like, I don't want to read anymore. I don't want it to influence how I do Jody. The idea of Jody came to me. I'm going to be totally honest with you, and it's not super flattering, but I was on a dating site, and I I went on 
a date with a game warden. Uh-huh. Um, a dude. And it, the, it didn't progress. My mom calls me the queen of the first date because I'm very happy the way I am. Like, if you're not adding something to my life, I just, it's going to be worse. I'm not, <laughs> not going to do this. Um, but I always learn, learn something interesting. And he was the one who's, who told me that game warden, I didn't know what it was. I thought it was a forest ranger. Right. You know, a lot of people make that mistake. It's not. Game warden is the only cop whose job it is to protect wildlife from people, basically. Okay. And they enforce conservation laws. They also teach people to hunt properly. So they're not, it's not, and I liked that uh, uh, because it's not, you can protect animals and still be a hunter. Sure. And still go fishing. You know, it's not like this, the U.S. is real big on binaries right now. So it's going to be like, use the hunters and they're all trophy hunters and horrible <laughs> posing with a dead giraffe. And then there's PETA and vegans. There's a <laughs> lot of nuance in the middle. Um but yeah, he told me that his job was the most dangerous law enforcement job in America. And I'm like, that cannot be true. You're out there in the middle of nowhere. And he's like, look it up. And I did. And sure enough, game wardens are seven times more likely to be attacked or killed on the job by a suspect than a city cop in like the worst urban area. Well, do you and, think that's because it, it's so remote and the chances of getting caught are pretty tough i think it's that it's definitely that because they can yeah. patrol an area that's five thousand square miles wow can you imagine no. and they don't usually work with partners so they're by themselves oh wow. and in those remote areas their cell phones don't work the radio police radio might not even work in some of those spots so they have a satellite radio you know maybe and then if you think about who they're up against out there, like people who have their licenses and they're fishing and hunting properly are not a problem because they do things the right way. But sure. poachers, you got to think of the mindset of a poacher. Um, this is a person who is armed. This is a person who does not care for the law. And this is a person who feels entitled to do whatever they want uh, as long as nobody knows about it. So you put all those things together, and I started thinking, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be interesting to be a woman game warden? Because then that adds kind of, most poachers are men. So it adds like another element of just danger. And that's what appealed to me. I wanted to, I feel like she's like the most imperiled cop in America in a way. Um, and then I upped the ante, you know, by putting her up against a group of terrorists who doesn't like people they perceive to be like her. Right. Uh, so it's all of that. Um, it was a wicked blend. I mean, it really was. You you had yourself, you were rooting for her, and then, of course, you despised the antagonist. And yet, um, and, and then there was so much darkness throughout it. But the way you pulled it out at the end by making um, this reunion, I'm just going to use that one word and stop, made me go, oh, wow. Uh, I can't say I did not fully see it coming, but I did not partially see it coming. So when it finally came, it was a very pleasant um, uh, bonus. And can I be any more nebulous than that? But we need to <laughs> I know do we don't want to. We don't want to spoil it. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I I wasn't sure if I was being too obvious about it. No. <clears throat> but also, you kind of do want to throw some breadcrumbs so people are like, is she? Is she not? You know. Yeah. 
Now, let me ask you this quick question, and I want to make sure I stay on this book. However, because I'm not familiar with you until now, I'm looking at your other books, which include Haters, Make Him Look Good, Playing with Boys, The Dirty Girls Social Club, Dirty Girls on Top, The Husband Habit, The Three Kings, The Feminist, and The Cowboy. So I'm wondering, how do they... Uh, relate or are familiar to this kind of a genre. I think this is a this is a debut series, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay, so that's a debut series. Mm-hmm. So they're going to not be like this in a lot of ways. However, because there's a um, and I, and I hope you take this as the compliment that it is. There is a YA feeling uh, sprinkled in here on a, a couple of places, which really shows itself in that opening scene that's humorous and i mean and i and i just i friggin love that scene it was so hilarious because it's so so true of social commentary of what is happening today with content uh influencers but back to this although these different uh because you you won some huge awards with these books so how do they how are they similar and or different to this oh boy okay well so we can unpack that by saying, thank you, this is fabulous. <laughs> but I, I do want to know, because I, I want to know what your style is and where it kind of came from. And Yeah. And so, yeah. Well, my father is a, um, a retired professor emeritus of sociology and history. Um, and he raised me mostly. My mom's a poet and um, uber academic. So, and he founded the New Mexico History Program at the University of New Mexico. And so we used to spend weekends when I was little driving to these little remote towns, kind of like what I write about, and he would tell me the history of them oh. and, and show me how different groups of people fit together. And uh, the concept of identity as a social construct was always something we talked about because my dad is, you know, my dad's an immigrant from the nation of Cuba. He's from Havana, but he came to the U.S. at 15 by himself. Um and ended up as part of something called the, the Operation Pedro Pan, where they, the CIA paid to take 14,000 Cuban kids out of Cuba. To, it's a long story. But anyway, he ended up in a foster home in Albuquerque and met my mom when they were both 18 at UNM. And they were living next door to each other in these little apartments. And, my, and so my mom, meanwhile is very much New Mexican, kind of like Jody's family. Her family's been here. We trace our family tree back um, to the you know early 1500s here. And, uh, but beyond that, you know that, that's the Spanish side and they married into, married into uh, Native American groups that had been here for 10, 20,000 years. So when I got, in, and when I was little, the, the term Hispanic didn't exist. I was born in 1969. The U.S. Census Bureau creates that label in 1979. So it was always really interesting for me to see how the U.S. was trying to create this monolith where it didn't exist. So later when people are like, what does the Latino community think? I'm like, both of my parents would fit that. And they yeah. have nothing in common. You know, it's like. And then to have, you know, also the academic side where we're all talking about this. What is this identity even being created for? What does it mean? So that's what all my books have in common, I think, is sort of an exploration of the complexity of what it is to be Hispanic or Latino in the United States, that it isn't a monolith. So that that was kind of my my first book, The Dirty Girl Social Club. That's the whole point of that book. So 
I kind of do that. I write on a couple levels in all of my books. There's the story that I think is fun and interesting. Then there's like the social commentary underneath. Right. And I think with all my social commentary, basically, I, I really don't like labels that are applied to human beings. Um, I think that, you know, race is a social construct. Racism is real. Race is not. We cannot say where one group of people begins and the other ends. Um, so for me, it's kind of like this belief, this American belief in race and ethnicity based on how you look is a religion of sorts and yeah. not one not one that I believe in. Not not one you want to worship at. Well, then yeah. this, this first of all, I felt like I just went to school and I should get some <laughs> kind of a degree, but please don't ask me for if so there's going to be a quiz because <laughs> so I'm not really great with quizzes. So secondly... Uh, this now helps me understand why you came up with that moniker or nickname of the uh, Godmother of Chica Lit. I mean, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's so funny because my first book was almost a parody. Yeah. Yeah. Right. A Latina Terry And I'm like, that that will never exist. And here's why. And and then to be like this label. And, and I say it in the book. It's like none of us had anything in common, but except for the fact that someone somewhere thought we had something in common yeah, and that was enough to bond us. So it can both be something that you embrace and that bonds you to other people. But within the group, you all know that it's doesn't really mean anything. Like we're not that simple. We're not that, you know, easy to predict. Right. So I've been towing that kind of fine line to be like, this thing doesn't exactly exist the way you think it does. And then to suddenly have the mainstream media be like, oh, she's the godmother of that thing that she yeah. just tried to tell us doesn't exist. I'm like, cool, I think. I Isn't don't know. Isn't that funny? Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're not going to give you a label, but I just gave you a label because the label fits for me. Right, right. And that's the thing about labels. They tend to serve the dominant class. Yeah. Um, and, and someone asked me, do you, so do you want to be called a Latina writer or not? And I'm like, it depends on who's saying it. So let's think about being called, you know, a funny Jew by Hitler or being called a funny Jew by Albert Brooks. Like, right. <laughs> what is the intent behind the label? And as a words, word person, words are fascinating to me because none of them are the things that they represent. So it's this imperfect effort for all of us contained within these bodies, you know, to connect with each other somehow. So, um, yeah, like there's a big debate now. Is it Latinx? Is it Hispanic? I'm like, it doesn't matter. Having had parents who speak two languages, my dad, you know, fully bilingual now. But I realized early on the word didn't matter. It was the thing that they were trying to say with the word. And in the U.S., I think we get really hung up on the symbols yeah rather than what the intent behind the symbol is well how about we just say you're a, a damn fine writer <laughs> thank you yeah how about we just go with that i like I, that i'm really terrible at almost everything like sincerely really bad at almost everything i don't this, this one thing i'm good at like yeah. that's it by the way i i i don't i'm not buying it um <laughs> I am going to circle back and hear you blow your horn. I want to hear that. But another time when you can get your reads in order. Uh, but this has been fun and I appreciate your time. And folks, if you'd like to learn more and read Hollow Beasts, which I would recommend, you might want to go to Alisa-Valdez. 
hyphenrodriguez.com. And by the way, I did a little digging on you, and I like your little Linktree uh, connection better because I learned all kinds of stuff about you there that I don't, not sure that I saw on your website. So yeah, the Linktree's better. If you want to do that, Linktree slash author Elisa. All right, once again, Elisa, this was fabulous fun. Hope the puppy's going to be better, and thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I apologize for my confusion. All good. All right, thank you. The, best thrillers, the, thriller zone. the Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.